Welcome to Two Dudes, One Movie Podcast. The podcast where two dudes dive into cinematic masterpieces from a different decade each week. From black and white classics to modern day blockbusters, we'll be covering it all. This season, we'll be focusing on psychological thrillers. And this week, our movie is from the 1970s. It's Don't Look Now. Rick, this movie isn't widely known, but it's considered a critically acclaimed film in the horror genre community. There's a lot to unpack, so why don't you give everyone a quick recap of the movie? Yeah, so I feel like quickly speaking, Park, we have this movie can be split up into a few things, if you will. So we have a mysterious adventure, we have death, psychics, Steven Spielberg's favorite sex scene of all time, and even a killer dwarf. This film introduces the absolute worst parenting techniques of all time, and even ends with a Kool-Aid man-like murder. It, I mean, it sounds like it, it has everything you could ever want in a movie. I mean, that, that's what makes it, I think, one of the, these highly regarded movies, is that it has it all. You intrigued me with Steven Spielberg's favorite sex scene, but you have my attention with a killer dwarf. Which is interesting, because, like, does Spielberg, do Spielberg movies have sex scenes? Yes, but they're never, in, they're never the focus. They're always in the background. E.T., the parents that are almost never around, where do you think they are? What do you think they're doing? That, that's why they're never around. <laughs> it's, it's there, Rick. You just got to look close enough. Well, I just think he probably saw that scene and he was like, I can't top this. I, I, can, never do, I can never do a sex scene in any of my movies. His uh, sex scene peaked and it wasn't even his film. It was, it was not even his. <laughs> so I think if you actually really get into the plot, we have beginning of the movie, Daughter Dies. Uh, I, I said this, I feel like I said this multiple times, and I will probably say multiple times this podcast, they do not give a crap about their other kid, Parker. So we've had daddy issues, we've had mommy issues, now we have kid issues, Rick. It's just straight up parent. It's bad parenting. <laughs> bad every, parenting. Like every degree. It's just they send this kid off to boarding school. So anyways, they go to boarding school. And then uh, he pursues a job to fix a church in Venice. So they escape to Venice. Don't even take the kid. So then psychics kind of get in their heads. John and Laura's head. Those are our main characters. Laura seems to finally care about the other kid. So she goes back and visits the kid. And then obviously the coat. We, we, we should censor this in case uh, there's any spoilers. The red coat turns out to be a murderer and cuts John's throat in a shocking twist. No, it wasn't blood that came out of his neck, Rick. It was it was Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid. according to your notes. Straight up Kool-Aid, Park. The last movie we watched, Psycho, I know it was black and white. They used chocolate syrup as blood. This movie, I don't know what they used, but it did not look like blood. Well, there's there's actually some videos online that go through the history of blood in film and chocolate syrup actually is a very good substance in black and white viscosity that's a science word science with parker every week i'm coming to you with something (laughs) something sciencey the viscosity of the chocolate syrup actually matches you know human blood very well so that's that's why they used it back in black and white pictures a lot i mean like we're in the 70s so i was already thinking that maybe like when i first saw it i like had the initial thought that uh they didn't want actual blood like, they didn't want to be too realistic. But then I thought back to, like, the sex scene. And, like, we don't see... Like, this is the 70s and it was crazy. And, like, we don't see scenes like that I don't like think it was a realistic... Anymore. I don't think it was that, Rick. <laughs> I think if they're okay showing what they showed throughout the rest of that movie, I don't think they're too worried about thing. it not being <laughs> realistic. <laughs> I think we need to... I think our audience needs this. We all just need to address... The elephant in the room, and and Rick, I think you know where I'm going with this. This is the trunk, the one and only sex scene of this movie. The 
the most graphic, intimate sex scene I think I've ever witnessed in film. I have to admit, Borg, I'm, I feel like I'm a bit of a prude. I did not, I did not make it through the entire thing. I got really? Halfway. You did it? I got halfway, and they, they cut... So how, how the sex scene works is they, kind of, they show bits and pieces, and they cut it up, and they show them getting dressed. And then, like, I see, like, halfway through, the dude is just, like, barely putting on his tie, and I just had the thought, I was like... This is gonna last for another like two and a half minutes. <laughs> they have a lot more to put, more, a lot I, more clothes way to get on. There's more content that's coming my way that I don't necessarily want to see. So I just, I just, I just zoomed forward until I saw the man fully dressed. <laughs> Rick, uh, I watched the whole thing. I stuck through the entire <laughs> thing, and you studied it in detail. I, I paused it. I zoomed <laughs> in. I really had to look, take notes of the of the, of the whole scene. Drew some pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I drew some pictures. Here they are. It was interesting, and watching in the moment, I was like, when is this going to end? But like looking back on the film afterwards, I understand why Rogue, who was the director, left it in the film. It is a very integral part to those two characters. They, they had been struggling with the death of their daughter to this point, and this was right after the psychics came to Julie or to Laura and told her that her daughter's happy and with them and smiling and giggling and she's with them. And that kind of resuscitated life back into her. And right after all that happened, then this emotional, you know, intimate scene happens. Did we need five minutes of sex? Did we need to see like 23 different sex positions? Maybe if you're a newlywed, you might want to, you might want to see those things. But Rick, the average viewer, I don't think needed that much, but Again, it it's very profound and it it leaves an impression like the rest of this movie. I feel like it's just it's the same reason that uh, people like to like bang at uh, funerals. There's something about grief park. Rick, there's something about grief. But what's also interesting too, uh, I guess from a a better standpoint, is that today when we do get sex scenes, it's almost to like it's not traditionally like when we see movies today, it's not traditionally married people, right? It's not. It's always like either cheating or it's like oh this is this is not right this is exciting kind of thing to where this was married people so it was it, it was a whole different like there's a different purpose it served oh totally and also the music behind it as well was not like a sexy kind of like let's get it on tonight type of music <laughs> i don't know why i just made like a creepy old grandpa voice there <laughs> I like how instead of that's my like, sexy voice right there. You could have gone Marvin Gaye. Let's get it on with the news one there. <laughs> Anyways, but it was like I I think I wrote down in my notes if my internal notes because I didn't physically write any notes for this movie. I was so entertained by the sex um, <laughs> that that it reminded me of like a 1980s sitcom intro music, like Family Matters. Just like da, 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 just well, the this, score like, itself was so odd too. Like the, the music in the movie, because even when the daughter died at the end, there was no music. You just heard you, you kind of just heard like the dad have this like wailish scream, and it was just kind of silence for a while. There are definitely moments of this film that very much feel like it's time. And Becky, like a couple times, just broke out in laughter with the extremely like hard zoom in shots. And dude, like, the zoom ins were amazing. It's like it's like when you almost have your first camera, or even on your phone. Like you, you you find out the video feature on like your phone, your first iPhone, and you start playing with the zoom. It's like oh look at this puddle over here, and you zoom in. 
something I, I, I found on the internet because I like to browse the internet is an article talking about this sex scene and one of the producers actually said that Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie had sex, actual real life sex. And I just want to paint a picture for everybody here. So I was not around in the 1970s, despite how old of a soul I really am. But in today's modern day of filmmaking, no one has actual sex on a film set. So what? Yeah, exactly. It's it's basically a sock, yeah, that goes over the penis. And there's usually an intimacy coordinator there that's like right off camera to make sure that things don't get hot and heavy. And if things do start getting hot and heavy, they're like, all right, time out. Wait, is that a job title? Or is that, that's not just a producer, mm-hmm. like you an intimacy will, no, coordinator? No, yeah, you can, you, you can look it up in film credits all the time. We had an intimacy coordinator on um, the Netflix movie I did with Nicole Kidman and Zac Efron. And she only came in for like three or four days, but yeah. How do you even like, how do you get there? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> What's the job interview like? That's one of life's great mysteries. I, I assume that on the top of their their resume, they say really great at sex. Yeah, I feel like the interview is just going through, look, I made these movies at home. Look, and I was right here to make sure that it was coordinated, all this intimacy, perfectly. That's wild. I, I had no idea. Yeah, so intimacy coordinators, that's an actual thing. But they're they're there to work with the actors to make sure that... You know, things are being handled in a respectful and professional way. I have a feeling that it's, that's more of a modern practice that is done in today's day and age and probably not something that was done in the 1970s. The 1970s, in my mind, is just like the Wild West of filmmaking and like everything and anything happened on set, around set. 70s, man. <laughs> Yeah, I can't speak too much into it, but there's a there's a lot that goes into um, a sex scene, and also just the amount of people that are around you. Generally, uh, when you're on a normal film set, it's almost always becomes a closed set. Even like kind of just laying on a bed and kissing each other. You take the crew out. You only have the absolutely necessary people in there, like the director, the DP, one camera op. If you have to have a sound guy in there. And maybe like the first assistant director, and like that's usually all you'll have. Yeah. In a it seemed like it was set. the same thing. This movie, when the, there's a lot of articles about the scene, and it seems like it was the same thing that they yeah. kind of. Which they brings me back to my point. Um, this producer um, claims that he was there and he watched, and they were actually having sex on camera. But there's other people who have gone on to say that this man was not on set when this happened, that this producer was not in the room. It was a closed set. There was only a handful of people there. So there's a lot of controversy around around that, Rick. That doesn't even date back that far. This, you know, These quotes in this article is back from 2011. So in the past decade and a half, Rick, we're still talking about this sex. Age-old question, Park. Did they bang? <laughs> Did they bang? That's what high schoolers ask all the time. Rick, so I want to ask you... Do you think they actually bang? I just like from the sense of, I guess, just like regular sex, no. But there were some other extracurriculars that did ha- that looks like they did happen. But you watched the whole thing. I didn't watch the whole thing. So <laughs> you true. tell me. You know, Rick, obviously I was of the mindset that it wasn't 
actually happening. But there were some shots in there where you could see all the way up to their thighs, and like they're very much sitting on top of each other. And it just, it was like, man, they're not. There's the camera is right there, and there's not much to hide. And I don't see anything that would signify that they're clothed in any way. From some of the angles that they were doing in that scene, you would notice some of that stuff. Um, I still don't think they actually had sex, but I would not be surprised if they were fully naked and got about as close as possible to having sex without having sex on a film set, unless you're in a porno. The intimacy coordinator could have been like a like a freshman in college, like he just he knows how to get or like they, they know how to get close enough. Maybe like a BYU student. I love how the last movie we talked about, probably for the same length of time, one of the greatest scenes in like all of cinema, the shower like the shower scene, and then this we're talking about a sex scene. But we gotta get into the great stuff part. Okay, so let's finally move on to the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's what we talk about every single week. Just our likes, dislikes, absolute disgust. Park, I want you, I want you, I think we should do it backwards. Tell me your disgust, tell me your ugly first. So Rick, a few of the things that I thought were ugly were just the things that took me out of the film. Things we've already talked about in this podcast. The ridiculous zoom-ins that take place throughout the movie. And also the fake blood at the end and the, the whole death sequence. Just those things that are fake, that feel fake, that just take you out of it, that feel out of place in a way. Um, and I understand movies of different times and different effects and things come in and out of um, popularity and, and, and whatnot. Um, but those, those things specifically really took me out of the story itself. And whenever something takes me out of a film, that's an ugly in my, in my book. What about you? And then it just doesn't hold up. Like, and I'd go, and sometimes special effects makeup, I can like give that the, a pass. But like things with like the zoom ins, like I, to me, it just like really doesn't hold up today. It's just like just zooming in constantly for really no reason. Um, so yeah, I agree with you with their uh, zoom ins. I think. Well, I'm gonna get back to this later. For a movie that is set in this like incredible Italian city, there's such a lack of food park. <laughs> like how there's not there cannot be that many movies in Italy that the only food they show is butter. They don't show anything else. Rick, that's a, that's why it's a horror. That's why it's one of the the classic horrors of all time. I, I just feel like I was no, on edge. There was no comfort for me, Park. No food in Italy. Just no, no no food, dude. Italians would be mad. Rick, they, there's even a scene after the sex the sex scene where they go out to dinner and they end up getting lost and, and going down these different alleys and and whatnot. No dinner was had there. No, it, they finally find their way back to civilization, and they don't even show us dinner. They're just like, oh, look, crowds and restaurants, let's go eat, and then cut. Nothing. Nothing at all. To move into the good, I thought the editing was phenomenal for this film. Yeah. Like you said, it, it really is a puzzle. It's not just this straightforward... Um, narrative story it's a puzzle and there's bits and pieces and it plays into um, John's character so something we haven't really talked about too much is that John is also a psychic to an extent um, the blind lady who who is a psychic who has more control and honed her powers also can sense that 
John is also psychic. And so that's part of what's going on throughout this movie is John is seeing things and he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand his ability that he's been given. And we as an audience don't even understand it either. And we're kind of in the same mindset as him in ways. And it really comes to head in the third act. Specifically, I just loved what they did here with his seeing his wife on the boat with the two women. And you get to this point, you're like, oh my gosh, she lied to him. She went behind his back and is with, with, with these, these women that we don't really trust. I felt like this movie really set them up in a diabolical ways. Yeah, they they felt like stalkers and they you know, there's a moment halfway or a little bit half more than halfway through the film where John almost falls to his death where he's at the church and he's up on a a high rise and the high rise collapse and he's hanging on for dear life and there's a dissolve with these two women just laughing hysterically and you're like this feels like demonic or a little satanic or something like that um and it just felt very off-putting and they kind of give them that vibe but it was really interesting by the end of the movie they play it as though they they genuinely are concerned for john's safety um so it's it's just interesting the direction they took with that and this movie is all about tone this movie is all about atmosphere this movie it takes place in venice during the winter time there aren't a lot of crowds it's really dark a lot of the time and they shoot it in a way where it feels like the city is a maze and a puzzle in itself and these characters are getting lost in it and i think it's a physical manifestation a physical representation of what john is supposed to be feeling and what we as the audience are also supposed to be feeling so in that regard the editing is amazing and it really portrays the atmosphere the dark undertones that you as an audience member i don't think ever really get the full picture of but you you have this feeling you have these these feelings as you're watching it that something isn't right and that there's something dark happening just underneath the layer of what i'm watching and what i'm seeing and it's again never fully resolved obviously there is an ending and there's a finite story to be told but there's a lot to unpack and that's that's the brilliance of this movie as well is there's so much to be left to be interpreted so much for the audience member to take and run with for themselves and what they think certain things of this movie are all about yeah and i think all that's well said i i agree with you so much of the good for me the good uh well one the good is this makes venice look like a place that I feel like I would actually want to visit. Uh, I've heard the worst things about Venice, Italy. Like, absolute work. How it's one of the most overrated cities in the world to visit. Just in terms of that, it's just so crowded because it's so condensed. So it's crowded with tourists and you can't really get anywhere. It just feels very, like, overwhelming. Which, in the movie, you get a sense of that, but they use that to their advantage for, like, the purpose of the movie. One, it's also the 70s, so it looks... At least the movie was, it was obviously filmed there. Was it filmed on location? I'm not totally sure. It looks like it was. I would assume at least some of it was. Yeah. But there wasn't like a crazy amount, I guess, of like tourists or like extra characters besides just like, I guess, random yelling Italians that uh, I had subtitles on during this movie because sometimes the mics were picking up 
to me, it was like, I mean, older Mike, uh, it was picking up a lot of odd noises to me, so I couldn't hear sometimes when uh, some of the characters were talking. And I think subtitles said Italian screaming four or five times. And these were not screams. They were the most weird, they were the weirdest, I don't even know if I'd call them scream. It would sound like animal noises. I don't want to say all Italians sound like that. But if I go to Venice and I hear Italian screaming like that, I'm not lasting long. <laughs> but... Yeah, so the, the good is it, it's like in a beautiful setting, and it uses that to its advantage. Uh, like thematically, it's incredible with the way it uses colors red. I think the whole re I think this was written for Venice more than it was written for the actors or characters. Like that's a main character in this movie to me. Um, that it's so much has to do with the water, right? It has to do with the water and the canals, and that because like the and it has to all do with the theme that their daughter like died in the water. So you're pretty much trying to be. Like the characters are overwhelmed, they're surrounded by water. It feels like they're like surrounded by their grief in a way, right? Uh, so I think a lot of great things there. Going into that, I feel like we, we gotta go back. So I guess we'll be a little bit into the ugly with the food. We gotta go back to the food review. We do it every week, even though there's no food in this movie. Park, we're doing a drink review this week. Are we? Yes, also, I'm sad. No alcohol drinks in this movie, Park, but there's one scene that you see a bottle like this and it is, you see the whole name, you see S. Pellegrino, right? This is there the exact is. thing that's in the movie. I also made sure to get the one with the right cap like this, because they didn't have the twisty caps back then. Mm. Ooh, look at that. Rick, but, I'm jealous. I know, man. It's good. It's like a, it's a big bottle. I have to drink it all tonight now since I opened it. There's no way, there's no closing <laughs> these guys. Can Rick drink the entire bottle? Find out on Two Dudes, One Movie Podcast. Um, I also think what's funny too, and I think this goes into how I do think that they either cut too much or they didn't pay attention to the fine details of the movie. So they see, when it's, when it's zoomed out of the room, you see the whole name and you can see the name S. Pellegrino, like exact bottle. And then when it cuts into a closer shot of her, it's immediately backwards. <laughs> so you can't see the label. <laughs> that, is, that is a, prop, a uh, prop person coming in and being like, that is not supposed to be like that. It's true. It's not as bad as the Starbucks cup we had in Game of Thrones, but had to had to say that it. is true. That is true. At least those exist at that time in yes. that world. <laughs> they exist <laughs> at that time. Well, Rick, that was that was just something something else. Watching you pop open that that bottle right there, Park. I wish it was wine. I'm not gonna lie. I was I was excited. I was like, this is an Italian movie. I can. Pop, I'm gonna definitely be drinking wine on our podcast. But Park, it's not. I'm. I'm I'm sad about that. Something I would love to talk about a little bit, and maybe I think you did a little exploration on this, but there's a lot of theories um, about this movie, and it again goes into the interpretation of the film. One of the theories that I really love is actually that the daughter that dies in the beginning is also psychic, and that she kills herself to warn her father of his demise later on. Rick, what do you think about that? Because and here's one of the one of the main factors that they they said for that is the way that she died and how she was found. She was not face forward. Her face was up and she wasn't in any distress. She was very much at peace when she was underwater. And we also didn't see how she died, too. No. So that's another key. She's exactly. just in this little lake. Honestly, I thought it was a puddle at first when they when the scene opened up and they were playing, I thought there was a lot of puddles around them. But yeah. I guess it was a little pond. Just a little pond, Rick. 
I can see it. I think that it has to do because obviously the psychics kind of connect a lot of this movie. So I almost feel like it's it was like already like kind of like it, it almost like already happened, right? Because the dad, uh, John. So it's almost like John was he was looking at the photo. So at the very beginning of the movie, he's looking at a photo. He spills. I thought it was water. It might have been some kind of solution on the photo, but it makes this like red. This red part of the photo looked like blood, so it almost looks like this red figure inside the photo was killed. And then that's when he has a sense, oh no, I gotta go run outside. So that was already like a hint that he's psychic from the very first five minutes of the movie. It was very jarring too because like he he just like gets up and runs out and it was in a, a frenzy. And then it cuts back to like his wife who was also in the room with him. Uh, and she's just kind of like on the phone and going about her day, not... Uh, completely oblivious to everything that is happening, and it's because it often, knew. It felt like he knew before he went went out the door. Well, exactly. He he saw it, and that was the foreshadowing for his psychic ability that uh, we, as an audience member, had no context for. Which was a really great way to open the film. It was almost like it showed the entire movie in the opening scene. This character doesn't understand his powers, and it kind of tricks him and leads him into this madness because of his daughter's death and and eventually leading to the demise and death of himself but you know it, it's just it was a great opening scene in my opinion so Parker I need, I need to camp out here on this opening scene a little longer because I got a theory for you a little maybe more outrageous than the oh. theory you just gave me so when they find when he runs out and he finds the daughter in the lake it shows their son that we don't see much let me tell you about this son, first of all. Wikipedia does not give this child a credit at all. This is Johnny, right? His name's Johnny. Is why I took a little digging, because I, don't even, I think they say it once in the movie. Johnny's face, when he was watching his like lifeless sister being pulled out of the water, stone-cold killer. He, like, he did not have any emotion at all. So, uh, so Park, the Johnny killer. You know, Rick, I can get behind that, too. That's a, that's a very interesting theory, and it would explain why they just kind of threw him off into a boarding school. They're <laughs> they like, the, they're like the you're messed up. Go to boarding school and stay thousands of miles away from us. They literally to barely mention him until something's going on. They get like a call that he's hurt, and then out of nowhere, the mom finally cares about her son. This is a textbook movie on how to be a bad parent. I can't, I can't argue with you there. That, that's something I didn't mention in my uglies that really bothered me. This son is used purely as a plot device to get Laura to leave Venice and have John be by himself. Yeah, that's the only reason. You know, they're, they're writing this script and they're probably like, how can we get this woman to get away from John at this point in the movie? It's like, the other writer is probably like, oh my gosh, wait, doesn't he, don't they have a son? And they're like, Dude, it felt like it was a decision in mid-movie because I like thought at first that it was just a friend because it's like we never see him in yeah, the movie. Yeah, or like all, a neighbor or, or something like that. But then out of nowhere, it's like, oh, it's their kid. So Laura has to go fly back to England to the boarding school he's in. Which I think is a totally reasonable thing to do and to yes, set up. But it kind of comes out of left field and it would have been nice to have fleshed it out even... You don't have to give something like that a full scene. You just need to give it a couple lines of dialogue to establish it. Talk about trauma, though. Like, they, I know they're dealing with their own trauma. They just let, leave this kid to, 
to fend for himself at a boarding school and his sister just died. Uh, which brings me back to the point that he didn't actually care. And they saw he didn't care, so he was like, hey, you go to boarding school. They're just trying to protect, protect everyone from just... future killers, but the reality is they can't even protect themselves from today's killers. Okay, so Parker, next we need to kind of dive in. So what do you think this movie is all about as we wrap it up? I think there's a lot of layers to this movie, but obviously it's about grief. It's about the way we as individuals handle grief. I think it shows a lot of the different styles and ways people tend to go about their lives after something traumatic happens. So you get this idea of isolationism. You get this workaholic mentality. You get this spiritual comfort. And they all kind of play their different roles in how the characters act and behave and propel the story forward. And I think it's a critique on all of these different ways and the positives and the negatives of them. So obviously John very much leans into the practical world side of things, whereas Laura very much is the opposite and leans into the spiritual realm with the psychic. John is wary of that side of things, but also is in that world as well because the job that he is doing, the work that he is doing is to renovate a church. So that spiritual presence is always surrounding him um, as well. Um, at the end, I think maybe it's it's a critique on our own intuitions and thoughts that take us over in grief and how that can be dangerous. Um, and how something we perceive one way can actually turn out to be something totally different. Those are the, some of the, the ideas and messages I picked up from this, this movie, Rick. What about yourself? Yeah, I completely agree with grief. I think grief is obviously the point of the movie. Uh, and even what you said to where it points out of, it shows how different people like deal with grief in all these different ways, right? Like I think that's where the sex scene comes in. It's where... The psychics come in. It's where John trying to make sense of everything comes in. It's where even escaping, like escaping England comes in. Uh, I think grief has so much to do there. I think it has to do, again, as I said earlier, I really think this movie was was written for the city. I think this is such a cool depiction of like this Italian city and it used it so well. Um, so of course I think there's like a point to the thriller. There's a reason why it probably has one of the better jump scares I feel like I don't know if I want to go there all time. It might be one of the better jump scares of all time because there's a lead up to it. This is not, there's a jump scare at the very end of the movie when it reveals, again, bleep this out if we need to. Spoiler alert, it like reveals the killer that the actual girl in red that they're chasing around or that John's chasing around is actually a killer who's been on the loose and has been killing girls um, in the city. And so right when that reveal happens, there's a jump scare. Uh, to where I think like, it's supposed to scare you, right? The same way John did, and then John, as he, as we have the Kool-Aid death, that's what I'm officially going to label it, he like kind of goes back in his mind through all of these different times, and he's like, oh, I was psychic in the end, I was just seeing the future and the past, and then he died. So yeah, I think, I think it's definitely about grief. Since we're already on the ending, we just talked about the ending, I've had to bring it up. I have something for you. Do you, Rick? Uh, so we're not going to do the quiz this week. Rick, no we're quiz? Just, we're spicing it up. We're doing something a little different. Ooh, I, I, so. I, 
Let's get some seasoning in here. See, let's get some seasoning in here. Some Old Bay. So, I asked, I went to ChatGPT, it's very big right now, and I asked ChatGPT, the AI, to write me a script, because this is the ending, this is my theory, it's pretty much the ending of my theory, an alternate ending, if you will. I said, please write me a script for an added scene with dialogue between the killer in red and the main character. The twist is, the dwarf is actually the son they forgot about and left at boarding school. <laughs> So this is pretty much taking out taking out the lady and just putting the sun behind the behind the mask, if you will. Incredible, perfect. Okay, so I'm gonna be John. I'm gonna be the main character. Oh, oh, we're gonna be characters. We're gonna, we're gonna be character. We're gonna we're gonna act this out. It's very short. We're we're, we're reenacting the scene. If they add a dialogue, so you're the dwarf. I'm John. Also, it has some actions. We have some shouting, some panting. I'm probably not actually gonna shout. You do what you will. Do what do what's comfortable, Park. This is a uh, well, Rick. You know, I didn't know the full extent to this, but I am fully going to get into character here. So, if you need to, if you oh please, <laughs> <laughs> for our audience out there who are who is just listening to this, I currently have a red hood over me now to signify my transformation into the killer sun dwarf. Also, Parker has not read the script. I loosely told him it was about in our kind of pre-show meeting. I, I really don't know anything. The second that the AI spat this out, I read it quickly to make sure that it was like something we wanted to do. Did, tell, let me tell you this. Did the dwarf talk in the... Did she have a line not in the movie? Okay, so I don't have any voice to go off of, so this is just wholly original now. Yeah, I don't think she talked at all. Even like when right when she turned around... No, right when she turned around, she's just shaking her head and kind of smiling, and then she... Yaks him. Okay, so here we go. Fade right. in, setting the scene. This is the Venice Canal at night. John Baxter is walking along a Zurich Canal in Venice, trying to make sense of the strange occurrences that have happened to him and his wife. Suddenly, he sees a figure in red darting around the corner. Hey, you! Stop there! John takes off, running after the figure, turning down narrow alleys and trying to keep up. As he turns another corner, he sees the figure standing in, or sees a figure in red standing at the end of the alley, holding a knife. Who are you? What do you want? You're a persistent one, aren't you? I already told you, I want my necklace back. <laughs> necklace? What necklace? That one. The one around your neck. John touches his neck and realizes he's wearing a red glass necklace that belonged to his daughter. No, this necklace is all I have left of my daughter. That necklace belongs to me. Dad! What did you say? Oh, it's me, your son. The one you left behind at boarding school. <gasps> what? No, that can't be true. Yes, it is true. You and Mom left me there for years without a second thought while you were off gallivanting around the world. I was stuck there, alone and forgotten. I'm sorry, we didn't mean for it to be like that. We were just trying to give you a better life. A better life? You call being abandoned by your own parent a better life? 
You left me there to suffer while you lived your perfect sex-filled fantasy. I know, we made a mistake, but killing people won't solve anything. It's not about solving anything, Dad. It's about making you pay for what you did. And now, it's time for you to pay the price. The dwarf lunges towards John with a knife, but John is quick and manages to dodge the attack. They engage in a struggle, with John trying to defend himself while the dwarf continues to attack. Uh, please, let's talk about this. We can work something out. It's too late for that, Dad. You made your choice a long time ago. Now it's my turn to make mine. The struggle continues until John manages to disarm the dwarf, knock him down to the ground. He stands over him, panting and holding the knife. Please, let me help you. We can fix this. <laughs> it's too late, Dad. It's too late for everything. Suddenly, the dwarf reaches up, grabs John by the throat. John tries to fight back, but the dwarf is too strong, squeezes harder and harder, and takes the knife and slits John's throat, and then he goes limp. Fade out. The end. Whew, wow, I gotta take this red coat off right now because I was getting a little too into that, Rick. I'm like, well, and I was almost in tears because I was laughing. I didn't know what I expected of this. You know, Rick, <laughs> I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but once once that narration start, the dwarf just took over. I was, I was but a vessel. I felt like John. I was losing my other kid while dying in the end. That was brutal. I think that this scene should have been in the movie. It should have been alternate. It should have well, been you know, this in, uh, alternate cut, director's cut. Well, it's like with uh, with I Am Legend, how the, how everyone preferred the preferred the director's cut. I think it's the same thing here. Well, now with the second, they're making an I Am Legend two, and they're going to go off of the director's yeah, cut for that. Can make a sequel to this, and we'll go off of. <laughs> Off of this. ours, yeah. The son is still on the loose. <laughs> he's got a he's got a mom to take care of next. That is another thing, though. Even even at the funeral, Rick, the poor boy doesn't even get to go to I his father's it. funeral. He's not there. His mother is with the two random psychic ladies he met like a week, she met a week ago. But where's little Johnny? I guess I, I guess he's got math class. He's got to he's got to be at because that's more important than his father's life. Well, and. And uh, Laura or Lauren, what's what's her name again? Laura. She goes over, yeah, Laura. So even Laura goes over there because Johnny got a little roughed up. What if he got roughed up because he was murdering other people and they was there fighting back, and then he <laughs> that he flew back to to hold his cover. You're really going strong with this theory, Rick. I love the conviction you have. I'm in it. I'm in this theory park. I'm in this right now. Anyways, very happy we did that. <laughs> <laughs> it was the highlight of the podcast for me, Rick. We might have to we might have to do it again sometime in the future. Uh, that's a lovely bit, a great bit. We'll always bring it back. Well, we ask every single time at the end of this podcast, would you pass or recommend? This is not a movie for everybody. I'm just going to go out and say this. This is artsy. It's linear, but feels non-linear in ways, um, and nothing is handed to you on a silver platter. You have to interpret and dive into this film and if you love to sit with a film I highly recommend it if you're more of a popcorn friendly type of moviegoer this is not your movie I would I would pass it so it depends on who you are I would assume most people listening to a movie podcast follow fall into the cinephile 
category. So for our audience, I would say recommend. I would I would totally give this a watch. There is such great atmosphere. There's such a strong sense of tone uh, throughout this film that deserves to be to be seen, to be talked about, to be interpreted in every which direction. So, Bark, I think I'm going to go hard pass. I'm going to go hard pass. I don't think I'm going to actually recommend this movie to anyone. Really? Yeah, I, like, it, and I think people already watch this, if you aren't fans of it, you would even understand it too. It's definitely, as Parker said, it's like, it's as you said, it's a, it's like an art class kind of movie. Like, it's, it's for people that they want to sit down, they want to pick apart, they want to enjoy. I even think, though, in that moment is that there are better movies if I'm sitting down and picking it apart and, and, and like want to enjoy, I think that this is a movie that if I'm in like film school trying to be a director, a teacher that doesn't actually care about my development in the class will just assign this movie and make me watch it when there's probably better examples of what they're trying to teach. I don't know. I, I think I would have to disagree with you on that, but we can agree to well, disagree, Rick. Beef and pork. Oh my gosh. This is the Let first. Let us know. What side are you on? Rick, next Parker week we're not even going to rev- we're not even going to review a podcast. We're just going to handle our beef. We're going to real life act out the scene that we just did. Yeah. And spoiler alert: I'm still a dwarf. <laughs> that that'll just about do it for this week's podcast. Another fun one, right? It was a great one, and it was still like I know I would pass the movie uh, from like an enjoyable sense. It's like it's very dated. That's why I'm passing it. it doesn't hold up today. It's funny that it's dated though. There's funny moments that it takes you out, but they're so maybe if you want to watch it as a comedy, yeah, if, it's on that line. Well, Rick. So next week, why don't we talk about next week's movie? We are going to move into the 1980s, 1986 to be exact. We are going to watch a David Lynch movie, Blue Velvet. Yes, this is when I finally start. Is Parker's the main movie guy here? This is when I finally start recognizing names. Laura Dern is in this movie. Shout out Jurassic Park. Very excited to watch this. There we go. Rick, just, we're just purely watching it for Laura Dern. I mean, Laura Dern is incredible. Any moment she's not on camera, I'm just going to skip. So even scenes there, she's going back and forth in dialogue. If she's not on screen, I'm just going to skip it. I mean, all the important moments of dialogue, I'm assuming it's all focused on Laura Dern. This is Jurassic Park is. I, didn't, I watched Jurassic Park like that. I didn't see any dinosaurs. Might as well Laura call Dern's it Laura Dern Park, Rick. Yes. Dern Park. Dern Park. Well, I think that does it, Park. (laughs) (laughs) I I think so, too. Thank you for listening to Two Dudes, One Movie Podcast. The podcast where two dudes dive into a cinematic masterpiece from a different decade each week. From black and white classics to modern day blockbusters, we'll be covering it all. Thanks so much for watching, guys, and we'll talk to you all next week. Hope your blood's not Kool-Aid. Bye. Two Dudes, One Movie is an independently created podcast. Like, rate, follow, and subscribe wherever you listen. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube where we will post full video recordings of each episode. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Two Dudes, One Movie Podcast. Thanks for watching.